This message comes from NPR sponsor Rosetta Stone, an expert in language learning for 30 years. Right now, NPR listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership to 25 different languages for 50% off. Learn more at rosettastone.com NPR. Welcome to The Limits. I'm Jay Williams. A quick note about today's episode. There are mentions of domestic violence, drug abuse, and graphic injuries, so please be aware of that. I want to start off by reflecting on the dozens of conversations I've had on The Limits, because this is actually our season's final episode for now, at least in the way we've been doing it this far. I know, I know. Trust me, we'll be back. In the next couple of months, though, we're going to be remixing bonus content from the amazing guests we've had on the show. So there will still be fresh takes and plenty of wisdom to come for you. But just as we do when the basketball season starts to come to a close, you've got to take a step back and look back on all that you've learned. I've had world-class guests talk to me about their greatest challenges and their biggest accomplishments. I'm thinking about Charlemagne the God, how he managed going from gifted classes in school to prison to the top of the radio food chain. You know, our, our talent has gotten us, gotten us to a certain point and it's opened up so many different doors for us. But it's like, what's next? Like, I want to be able to open up doors for that, you know, next generation. And Megan Rapino fighting like hell for equal pay for the U.S. Women's National Soccer Team. The money part allows you freedom and like freedom to speak out. It just gives you that autonomy to do things that can push your sport. Then there was Coach Brian Flores, who sued three NFL teams and the league itself for racial discrimination. He told us his unvarnished truth and showed us what true leadership looks like. This isn't about me. This is about a system in the NFL that, in my opinion, is broken. I'll also never forget the conversation I had with my coach, Coach K from Duke University, soon after his retirement. This man led us to a national championship and became like a second father to me. And he still gives me a hard time. For me, having daughters changed my life in a very positive, that I'm not against sons, but I had enough of you knuckleheads to coach. Uh, (laughs) This is the reason why I wanted to do this pod. I've spoken with writers and actors, athletes and entrepreneurs, the legends of the music industry, all asking for their secrets to their success, and they never disappointed. And I hope you'll go back and listen to each and every episode, either again or for the first time. But as I talked to my colleagues about all of that reflection, they decided it would be a good idea to turn the tables on me because I'm in the hot seat being interviewed today by the great Gene Demby, co-host of NPR's Code Switch. I've been following you since you were at Duke. You were obviously like a monster, a, an absolute monster. You're going to make um, me feel old now? We started from the beginning where I was born and raised. That was Plainfield, New Jersey. Let me set the scene for you. Plainfield had big economic and racial divides which made me think a lot about race and class since I was just a kid. I was playing sports, sure, but I was always thinking and always listening too. You know, just taking it all in whenever I could, trying to understand the limits of the world that I was raised in. Back to Gene. What was your childhood like? Like, what can you tell us about the way you grew up and what your family was like? Strict. You never quit something that you committed to. You follow through. My dad worked in New York City. He left every morning on the train, a very hardworking, blue-collar African-American male that graduated from the Ohio State 
University, as he has properly trained me to say, both him and my mother graduated from The Ohio State. My family was very intellectual. I grew up listening to NPR on weekends. Mm. My mom mm. worked as a guidance counselor, was also going back to school to become a principal to get her master's degree. So there was a lot of hard work that set the foundation for who I was. But there was also a lot of um, confusion, right? It was being part of a middle-class family in the town that you know was kind of split economically. I got punked a lot of times growing up, right? Because I was the Uncle Tom or uh, I went to the private Catholic school in the adjoining town, not the public school, right? So almost like this, how do I fit in? Um, this identity crisis that I've suffered through for a big stint of my younger years uh, in my life. And I, I think that was, that only gotten, that only got heightened when I went to Duke afterwards, mm -hmm. because then it was, you know, you're going to the, you know, supposed like quote unquote Ivy League school in the ACC. And, and here you are as a young black man, you know, in a predominantly white school, where do you once again fit in with your own people and your human people? How does that work? So I think that identity crisis is a theme that's kind of gone throughout my life. I want to ask you about your identity because obviously a big part of your identity is wrapped up in the fact that you hooped and you were an amazing hooper. So how did you actually come to basketball? I played all sports. So my first love was tennis. My parents never allowed me to be inside. They always kicked me out of the house. So I was just naturally playing everything. Mm. And then all of a sudden in the fourth grade at my school, I decided to go for a tryout and I got picked as a JV starter, like not on the fourth grade team, like actual JV, which is fifth and sixth grade. And they're like, yeah, you're going to start. And I'm like, I'm going to start. Wait, what? I just had a natural proclivity towards hoop. It just, it just kind of happened. And I fell in love with it. My mom made probably one of the biggest moves. Like <laughs> we joke about it because she said, man, from the time you've been in fourth grade, you've always been driven economically. <laughs> Um, because my mom was like, you know, I'll give you $2 for every basket you score. And from that point on, man, I just started averaging like 15, 20 point. Oh, I just start, I, you, I'm like, wait, you paying me money to go score buckets? So mm. yeah. Was basketball, uh, like a social equalizer for you at all? Like you said that people used to clown you, right? You used to get punk sometimes, but I imagine being on the court and being able to hoop as well as you could might've like, like, yo, Jay, Jay is nice. Like. Like, let's, let's ease up on them a little bit. I laughed because I became, I was the kid that got jumped a couple of times mm. in his hometown to the kid that got protected mm. in his hometown pretty quickly, right? Um, very similar to what you talk about, that's code switching, mm. right? Just learning how these different lanes, these different avenues actually worked. I didn't feel like I could be unapologetically black in my school avenue, but I also didn't know what it meant to be unapologetically right. black or how to even describe it. But as a hooper, when I was in attack mode, I didn't have to fit in. Mm -hmm. My game fit in for me. The way I had learned how to articulate myself to the best of my degree was on the court. That was my safe haven. That was where I could take out all that anger or not feeling like I was black enough in my own community or not being accepted in the all white community because I was black and I was different. Mm -hmm. All that confusion led to my anger being displaced on the court. Mm. We talk about this a lot on the podcast of like that age 
is when people are just generally trying to sort out just the the basic parts of their identity, right? Like, what kind of music do I like? Am I straight? Like, all these, like, not simple, these, like, giant questions about who they're going to be. Um, and uh, there's also the time that people are sort of coming into a lot of their racial awareness, too. And those things are all mm. jumbled up together. And it's a time of, like, great confusion. You're trying to figure out who your friends are. You know, if, like you said, you're you're toggling between these different spaces, right? Like, it's just very hard to be a teenager and try to sort out these big questions that, you know, frankly, like, a lot of us don't sort out for, like, much for decades later. You know what I mean? So by the time you're going to Duke and you're making the decision to go to college, you mentioned that there was some strife in your household and that was weighing on you as you were sort of walking through the calculus of deciding which school you wanted to go to. Um, I know it's a very sensitive question, but could you talk a little bit about what was happening at home? Yeah, I think um, there are certain lessons that resonate with me from a father perspective that I had no idea about as a young child that I can relate to my father now more than ever with some of the stresses that come on both he and my mother with providing for family. And my dad was working in the city. He worked for American Express as a young black executive. He got asked to be on the road all the time, traveling to different countries. Mm. So there were a lot of times that my mom had to do it all where she was you know, the enforcer, she was the nurturer, she was the person that cooked me breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And, you know, with a lot of that comes a lot of stress, you know? And um, I think with that stress and maybe not knowing how to properly articulate themselves, I think that led to some physicality like that. And I think as a kid, seeing the physicality that sometimes existed and, you know, seeing my mom bruised up a couple of times uh, really altered me as a young person even though it it didn't happen a lot like that stuff burns an image in your mind and um you don't understand about other dynamics of marriage but none of that should ever culminate in domestic violence right um regardless of who started and where it went and i think there were a lot of judgments that I quickly came to the conclusion on without really doing diligence because I didn't know how to ask the right questions until you start getting older and you start having your own experiences. I know it's getting pretty real talking about these issues in my family, but it's part of the process and it's what makes me who I am. And that honestly is what makes the limits the show it is. And of course, an interviewer as good as Gene knows how to open a guy up and get to the marrow of the story. And trust me, we're just getting started. Coming up after the break, the basketball trajectory that brought me to a college championship and the NBA and the accident that ended it all. Stay with us. This message comes from NPR sponsor, BetterHelp. When you keep your stress bottled up, it can eat away at you. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to make them better. Try BetterHelp Online Therapy, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp at BetterHelp.com NPR today to get 10% off your first month. The NPR app cuts through the noise, bringing you local, national, and global coverage. No paywalls, no profits, no nonsense. Download it in your app store today. This message comes from Schwab. 
It's easy to invest in ideas you believe in with Schwab Investing Themes, like online music and videos, artificial intelligence, and electric vehicles. Choose from over 40 customizable themes. More at schwab.com. This message comes from NPR sponsor Progressive Insurance, where drivers who switch could save hundreds on car insurance. Get your quote at progressive.com today. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Last year, over 20,000 people joined the Body Electric study to change their sedentary, screen-filled lives. And guess what? We saw amazing effects. Now you can try NPR's Body Electric Challenge yourself. Listen to updated and new episodes wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to The Limits. I'm Jay Williams. And in this episode, NPR's Gene Demby is interviewing me. We'll hear how Gene followed my career as a Duke basketball player. And then we'll hear how it all ended much too soon. Or maybe it ended right on time. I'm glad to share my story with you all. So here we go. Back to the show. It was myself, Shane Battier, who went in the draft. Mike Dunleavy, who went fourth in the draft. I went second in the draft. Mm-hmm. Boozer went second round, but turned into a perennial all-star. That's right. And then we had Chris Duhon, who played 10-plus years in the NBA. So we had a pretty we had a pretty good team. A pretty good team. Pretty good. Team. Pretty good team is, is underrated a little bit, right? I mean, y'all had a bunch of future pros on that team. You were National Player of the Year, and you were, you said, like you said, the number two pick in the draft, right after Yao Ming. And the conservative sort of estimation of your career was that you were going to make a couple all-star games, right? This dude is going to be a star in the league for a long time. After your rookie year with the Bulls, you have this life-changing motorcycle accident. Um, So can we talk a little bit about both the night of the accident and what came after? So pretty much I was coming back from Durham, North Carolina, and, and I just, I recommitted myself to the game. I was working out every single day. And literally, I just played a pickup game that night, and Coach K was telling me about how different my game looked. And I felt like I was ready to come into my second year of the league. When he said your game was different, I'm just curious, what, like, as a basketball player, what did he mean? Like, how did your game change? My body changed, man. Like, playing 82 games was hard. Mm-hmm. And it's just not the amount of games, but it was day in, day out. Monday night, I'm playing against Chauncey Billups, who is 6'3", 225 pounds, to Tuesday, flying out to Phoenix and then playing Steve Nash that plays a completely different game than, uh, than Chauncey Billups and runs over three and a half miles per game. So the conditioning was different to having a day off on Wednesday, but staying in Phoenix and then partying on a Tuesday night with some of my friends and being hungover on Wednesday and going to shoot around and getting shots up. And then Thursday coming back and going to Philly and playing Allen Iverson. We we're like, yo, you really are 6'1", 175 pounds soaking wet. Can I even touch you? <laughs> like, and you're shooting the ball and you're carrying the rock, but you're dancing with it differently to then going playing against Michael Jordan on the Friday with the white. It was every night, man. Mm-hmm. Like you couldn't turn off. And that was tiring for me. I never played at that level, at that volume of games. So my body... Like everyone is as good as you. Or better. Or better than you for the first time in your life. Exactly. At your position. So I come from Durham working out. Coach K tells me he thinks I'm going to be different. I feel like I'm going to be different. My shot is better. I'm way more fluid. My condition is way better. So yeah, I literally drove down on my bike to my agent's house. Uh, in Chicago, about two and a half miles away from where I was downtown. And as I was leaving his house, 
I didn't have any protective gear on, no helmet, no jacket, because there was no helmet law in Illinois at that state of time. Rev my engine once with a new muffler on the back, had the bike in neutral, was fine. Second time I did it louder than the first. And in the middle of my third rev, I just heard the bike go click, click. The bike popped up on me out of nowhere. And next thing I know, when I grab onto the handlebars, man, the bottom part of the wheel spins out and I, I'm headed towards a utility pole going 65, 70 miles an hour. Oh my God. Clip the whole left side of my body. My body flings around in the air. My chest lands on the sidewalk. Um, my legs are up kind of on the curb in the pavement as if I'm laying on my side, like with both knees on top of each other. But my chest is on the grassy knoll area between the curb and the sidewalk as if I'm laying on my stomach. And it was at that moment I realized something really bad has happened. Oof. I thought I was paralyzed and I felt as if somebody was pouring hot scolding water on the lower portion of my body. But every time I looked at my hands after touching my legs, I didn't see blood. I mean, I started screaming out right away that I threw it all away. I threw it all away. You're so in tune with your body as an athlete. I knew right then and there that I, I didn't think I was ever going to be the same. Hmm. That sent me into a very, very deep state of depression. Bulls guard Jay Williams has been involved in a motorcycle accident. The second player taken in the draft was transported to the hospital in critical condition. These uh, injuries could definitely change his career permanently. I'm, I'm just thinking about the process of going through something like that for someone who is not an athlete, right? But you're going through that process after this happened to you with people who are both economically like relying on you, right? They like their finances are sort of dependent on you. You have a team that has invested in you. So you can't even like just process this as yourself and with, you know, with your mom and your dad and your friends, right, and your family. But you have to, like, process this in this very public way, right, with all the, and with all of these different uh -huh. people who have a stake in you. Like, and I'm just curious how you navigated all of that. And if, like, how, how what that experience was like. Shitty. Yeah, I mean. <laughs> That's how I navigated it. Yeah. Very, very shitty. It was almost like a triple whammy, Gene. Number one, I had my own mm -hmm. pain and trauma to deal with as it related to making a poor decision that affected the future of my career and the opportunity to play a sport that I naturally loved. That was painful and very difficult to deal with. Uh, number two was dealing with it publicly and the amount of people that had opinions on what was going on, what my career was gonna be like. I mean, I was in my hospital bed during the NBA draft that year, watching the Bulls select another guard at the same position I had just played. Hearing people say that I made a dumb decision and that I didn't deserve to come back and play. There were a lot of things that were really hurtful and painful about that. And then the third was even more heartbreaking than the first two to a degree because when I got drafted, the words, I made it, never came out of my mouth. It was, we made it. We made it. So all the money that my mom had spent working two, three jobs for me to go to these camps, we made it. She sacrificed for me to make it. Now we were going to be a black entrepreneurial family, mm -hmm. achieve generational wealth. So when, that, when I was in that hospital room and my parents are crying, 
It's a big part of me. Like I let them down because now they're not going to achieve their dreams as well. It wasn't just my dreams. It was all these people who had invested in me and their dreams as well about what I could provide for them. And to me, that was heartbreaking for the way my parents had sacrificed for me to get to that point. Mm. So there are people who are calling you, you know, dumb for what you did. And you're in the lowest moment of your life at this point, right? Mm. And you're in the process of both trying to reckon with what is very likely the end of your career. You are trying to rehab. You feel all this guilt around disappointing your parents. Um, at what point do you, you said you fall into a deep depression and I'm, I wonder, like, that's a lot for one person to walk around with, right? There's a lot for one person to carry mm-hmm. around. Um, did you ever get help? Did you, like, how did you sort of start to make your way out of that fog and sort of try to process what happened? So I had seen a therapist mm-hmm. during the first couple of years, a ton. Mm-hmm. But I think the thing that really, where I really got broke, you know, the depression had highs and lows, right? Some of the highs were obviously being in a hospital bed for, I was in the ICU for a month and a half. Mm. I was in the hospital for two and a half months. And most of the time, man, I was high. Mm. I was high on dilaudid. I was high on morphine. I was in a lot of pain. But when I started to finally be able to like work on physical therapy mm-hmm. five months later, it was like the basketball switch happened, right? Lock in, focus. Mm-hmm. Like now I'm like, whatever I need to do to move my foot. There would be days, Gene, I would stare at my foot for hours and be like, move, mm-hmm. move, big toe, move, move, like just like talking to myself Mm. like think about that for hours right um so i became so fixated and myopic and nothing else mattered like nothing else mattered in that and the moment i really broke was i got cut by the nets which i'd never been cut by any team before in my life i went down to the g league i played in a couple of games but i tore my hamstring off my bone during one of the games and dennis johnson dennis johnson was my coach from the boston celtics play with Larry Bird, play with Robert Parrish, those mm-hmm. iconic Boston Celtic world championship teams. And him and I were very, very close. He prayed with me multiple times. He visited me in the hospital that night. And when I went back to Durham to do more physical therapy, I got a call from one of my teammates in the G League. And Dennis Johnson had passed away from a heart attack. Mm-hmm. And I decided to quit basketball that day. Yeah, that day I quit. I was chasing something that I didn't feel like I was anymore. Hmm. And uh, I wanted to take a step towards the direction of figuring out who the new me was. I just didn't know how difficult that was going to be because the world didn't want to let me find out who I was becoming. The world only knew me for who I was. And people reminded me of that daily. That's when I started using oxycodone, oxycotton again a ton, became addicted to it, Um, living on the Lower East Side of New York City, drinking a lot. I was just really messed up, man, trying to figure it out. And it was lonely. It was lonely. But, you know, one day after my second attempt failed, I woke up and I stopped being a victim. It was the first time in my life I was like, I'm not going to whine anymore about why me. My dad had said something to me the night before about why not you? Hmm. Like, why not you? Like, you are special and special doesn't, only equate to the success 
special equates to something inside of you that helps you navigate how you handle everything that life throws at you. And um, I think it was at that juncture that I decided to start fighting for myself. I never fought for me. Mm-hmm. I was fighting for my game on the court. I fought for economics, but I never fought or spent time figuring out who I wanted to be mm-hmm. at all. Yeah, this issue of identity is coming up again, right? Like this idea of like, you know, you were trying to figure out who you were and basketball was a way to quiet some of those questions, right? And then um, mm-hmm. um, basketball becomes the way that you are seen globally, right? Um, and then it's taken away from you. And then you have to come back to this question like of who you are. What do those conversations look like? Like, what do they sound like? Well, it was something really easy. Who do you want to be? I never thought about what kind of person I wanted to be. Hmm. From the time I was 18, and I started this, getting this flurry of attention, Gene, life just started happening like, <laughs> all of a sudden, boom, like I'm playing in the game. I'm dropping 25 a game. I'm on draft boards. People are chattering about me. I have a girlfriend. I got school. I'm trying to graduate school in three years. I could leave school my sophomore year and be the first pick in the draft. We're having meetings about that. I'm talking to agents. I'm talking to accountants. I'm talking to financial advisors. Mm-hmm. I was always on the move, right? Oh, I'm staying in school. I'm going to graduate school in three years. Great. I got to overload all my courses. You know, am I handling that correctly? Am I getting ready for the draft? What is my brand? What the hell is a brand? <laughs> um, where should I invest my money? Yeah. What teams are going to draft me? All of a sudden, I get drafted. Boom. Where am I going to live? I'm making how much money? Wait, who who do I have to pay? Why do I have to pay you so much money? Actually, wait, what what, what do you do again? <laughs> wait, mom and dad, you're on salary. Are you sure I should be paying you this amount of money? How do I even deal with altercation with you guys and addressing? I don't think you should get paid this amount of money, but do I have the bravado to tell you that at the age of 21? Right? You're my mom and my dad. To all of a sudden, you know, getting hurt to being depressed. Life was moving so damn fast. I didn't have time to think. I was too busy reacting. So for me, I'd never been present with myself. That was the first step, learning how to be okay with being uncomfortable with being with myself. That's a hard thing to do, man. Absolutely. To sit with yourself. People don't do that. People just make themselves busy and deflect trauma. Absolutely. No matter how much time passes, I can still envision myself playing basketball for Duke and for the Bulls. And I can feel those motorcycle handlebars and I remember every detail of that hospital experience that very easily could have been the end of my story. But I'm grateful, guys. I'm here. I'm alive. I'm talking to you. And I'm living. But come on. You know the show is all about the redemption arc, the lessons learned, and the ability of the pivot. That's right. A pivot is more than a basketball move. It's a way of reimagining who you are and what you can be or who you want to be. You've got to believe in yourself first, and then others will follow suit. At least that was my experience as I built the next phase of my life. All that and more when we're back from the break. Don't go anywhere. Support for NPR and the following message come from NPR sponsor Allianz Travel Insurance. International travel can be life-changing, but an unexpected emergency can make your trip memorable for all the wrong reasons. Allianz Travel Insurance provides benefits for medical emergencies, trip cancellations, travel delays, and more. Get a quote at AllianzTravelInsurance.com. This message comes from NPR sponsor Teladoc Health. There are lots of reasons for wanting to be healthy. Family, work, living a fuller life. 
Teladoc Health understands whether you have diabetes, high blood pressure, or just need to manage your weight, Teladoc Health can help. Visit teladochealth.com slash what's your why for more information. That's T-E-L-A-D-O-C health slash what's your why. This message comes from NPR sponsor Mint Mobile. From the gas pump to the grocery store, inflation is everywhere. So Mint Mobile is offering premium wireless starting at just $15 a month. To get your new phone plan for just $15, go to mintmobile.com slash switch. What does it mean to be Black in America? In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, a collection of stories as varied, nuanced, and dynamic as the Black experience, you'll hear it means everything. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to The Limits. I'm Jay Williams. We've heard all about how I've grown up and how I became the basketball player who won a national championship and was picked second overall in the NBA draft and played for the Bulls. But a motorcycle accident ended all of that. And now NPR's Gene Demby will ask me, just as I did with our guest, how I made the transition from tough times to hard and lonely grinds to forging my own path forward. Back to the show. You made this kind of remarkable pivot, right, from someone who was, you know, this beloved player, right, to someone who became something of a a cautionary tale, right, like don't be like Jay Williams, right, to um, a really respected analyst, to a, you know, a, a, a media figure um, whose insights are sought out. So I'm curious about how that process started because it's a completely different thing, right? Like it's a completely different thing to go from being the basketball player. And you know, like you're, you you watch sports. We we all know that there are plenty of dudes who used to hoop, who used to play football or whatever, who are like really bad analysts, right? You know, who just like don't add any insight to the game. It's like, bro, I actually want you to tell me something I don't know already, right? Um, how did you make this giant sort of pivot, which I imagine required both like – learning a bunch of new skills, but also getting people to, like, just to come along with this journey of, like, re reimagining yourself, right? I mean, they had to, to buy onto you, Jay Williams, the the sports analyst, and not Jay Williams, you know, the hoop phenom. I mean, I think that's why I wrote a book about, you know, Life is Not an Accident, a memoir of reinvention, right? Because mm-hmm. um, I literally learned how to reinvent myself, but an old school Drake song, right? Started from the bottom, now I'm here. Mm-hmm. Um, I literally started from the bottom. I was making thirty thousand dollars a year as an analyst. Where were you? Where category. was? Where was this? Were you like on a local, like a like Fox Sports like network, like calling Duke games? Like where? where what was this? ESPNU. Okay. CBS Sports Network, right? Like the lower tier, going to <laughs> random, you know, multiple connection flight type cities <laughs> in the middle of nowhere. And literally, I mean, and also being humbled, right? Like, Gene, I remember one time walking on the plane, and I was going to Old Miss to call a game. And it was like a Sunday night game, 7 o'clock, and I'm trying to get there Saturday evening. For all my time at Duke, you're on private charters, mm-hmm. right? In all the, the time league. in the NBA, you're on private, private charters. Charter. You're in the league, right? Um, and I remember walking on the plane, and multiple people recognized me, which was one of the challenges right mm-hmm. like hey you're yo you're you used to you used to right mm-hmm. and they're they're pointing to me trying to figure out who i am as i'm walking all the way to the back of the plane <laughs> in the middle seat and you're right? three, and like, yo, you're not 200 pounds yeah. 
<laughs> they're like, you you not sit in first class? Are you an athlete? Did you? Oh, you got you got hurt in that motorcycle. Damn. Sitting in the back of the plane now, huh? Bro, I just want to say, I'd have been hot if you sat next to me. And I'm like, bro, this is this big. <laughs> I'm like, yo. <laughs> oh, my God. It was just an adjustment for me. Look, I think sometimes as athletes, you only equate work with the time you spend in the gym, mm-hmm. right? And that is work. It's very hard. But when you enter the real world and it gives you an alternate perspective on what hard work really is, mm-hmm. and you start seeing people that are grinding from 5 a.m. in the morning until 9 o'clock at night, these mentally taxing, grinding jobs to make ends meet for their family, and being on the road and sleeping at Holiday Inns Express and waking up at the crack of dawn to catch another flight, and I didn't. there was no red carpet. There was nothing that came out for me, nor did I expect it, but a lot of my life had been that way. So I think it just... It taught me about, okay, like, let's rebuild the foundation again. Let's rebuild it. The only way I knew how to attack it was put your head down and work hard and grind. So a couple years ago, you had this documentary, this documentary is called uh, Best Shot. Um, Best Shot. Which more people should have seen, or more people should have talked about, rather. Because I was like, wait, why are we not talking about the show? Um, I was <laughs> riveted by it. He's getting the pressure. He's getting the pressure. Let's go, baseline. Let's go. Smallest to toes. Y'all need to come together, man. Y'all play like this. Y'all need to play like this. Y'all will keep having this feeling if y'all keep playing like this. I want this experience to change lives. It, it, in this show, you fought around um, some young high school basketball players who you were mentoring. You took some of them down to Duke. Um, I remember that episode really profoundly. Um, and it was interesting because it wasn't one of those shows like these dudes are going to naturally become... D1 players. I think there was one dude who could like who had like who was a person who would have been like a mid major type player. But like everybody else on the team was like this was probably the end of the road for them basketball wise. Um, and, but basketball was this thing that was this galvanizing force in their mm-hmm. lives. Um, and so you were sort of stepping into this mentorship role, the sort of fatherhood, this father figure type position for these boys. Uh, and I know at the time you were also about to start your mm-hmm. own family. So I'm wondering how you were thinking about modeling masculinity. Affirming masculinity, modeling vulnerability, modeling just being a present mm. male figure who is not like toxic to these boys who, like in a lot of cases, didn't have somebody else to be in that role. And I actually talked to Coach K about this. Yeah. It's like, how do you maintain relationships with all your players? Hundreds of players, yeah. Throughout all the years. You're talking about hundreds of players, right? Not only do you have your family, your wife, your kids, but also now you have these hundreds of players that you built this bond with, mm-hmm. but you can't be there for all of them during these critical moments. And that was the first time I recognized, I was like, wow, I'm about to be a dad. My daughter is going to be born soon. My wife is pregnant, but I've just adopted 14 young black men and I want to be there for them, but they all have their own individual set of challenges. One of the kids in particular named Hottie literally found out on the trip that he lost his father. Mm-hmm. And to me, this just kind of epitomizes what team sport is. So, you know, they used to say this line at the end of all of our huddles, we all we got. And you recognize one thing I really miss about it is that it's your job to look out for each other, to take care of each other, to support each other, to build each other up, to learn who each other are and how each person functions differently but to respect it but to get everybody to buy into a collective 
And that collective ranges in the experiences of emotion, sad, happy, angered, frustrated, depleted, exhausted, staying mentally strong. And all these are lessons that are applicable to life, to life. You know, you turn the ball over. Are you going to spend time weeping about the turnover or are you going to get your ass back on defense and think next play? Right. Or about like when a teammate falls down, you're going to make sure that they get up. Like it's little things like that that I think are just life lessons that for me, I just wanted to I wanted to share. And, and being a black male means being strong. It means being sad. It means at times feeling like you're weak. It means at times being vulnerable. It means picking yourself back up. It means being sharp. It means being all the above and being honest with yourself throughout the process, which is hard. But if I could help young people create a foundation of that I've had to learn how to do for myself throughout my experiences, that's what giving back is to me. You know, helping you have the tool set or the toolkit to be ready for what life throws at you. Congratulations on our third child, bruh. Like yeah, we just got to a point where we sleeping, man. Like, I don't know how you got your day stacked up. Like, how are you supposed to do all this stuff? And you know what I mean? Like it whew. wasn't planned. <laughs> like, it's so different. It's so different. It's, it's amazing. Like it's, it's amazing, but it is, man, I ain't never been this tired of my life. Yeah. And, but it's the most fulfilling thing oh you've in your life too, though. So your baby's a year old now? He's 10 months. 10 months so he just okay so he's smiling smiling giggling he's cruising now so he's like holding everything trying to pull himself up it's it's what somebody said to me is like it's a lot of not a lot of fun but it's a lot of joy that's exactly right like i'm i'm there are days when i'm like on like just on fumes but i'm like amped to see him every time i see him every single time i see him i'm like you know what i mean jane so my daughter's she's turning four next month and uh one of the best things i've ever been told was that you know with kids from people who've had kids. Jay, the days go slow, mm-hmm. but the years fly by. Mm-hmm. And like, I'm looking at my days, like, I'm so tired. I know. I'm like, wait, what? You're turning four? Right. What the hell? I'm like, where did what? these 10 months go already? I'm like, you just got here. But it's like, no, you're, you, he's already a very different child. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, man. Shout out to Gene Dimby for this amazing conversation and the whole NPR team actually for making this happen. As we always say in basketball, Play hard on the court and leave it all on the floor. Well, I hope you realize and you feel the same energy with this show. We've had some laughs, we've had some tears, and we've had a whole lot of inspiration for how to live a successful life, whether that's in your business, with your family, or in learning to grow, love, and accept who you are yourself. I appreciate you taking the time for this journey with me. Thank you so much for listening to The Limits. I'll see you around the way. And like I said, we'll still be putting new episodes out from the guests you've gotten to know this past season. And as always, remember, stay positive and let's keep it moving. We got things to do. The Limits is produced by Devin Schwartz, Max Friedman, and Lena Sunskeri. Video production by Kaz Fantoni, Langston Sessoms, Christina Shaman, Iman Young, and Nick Michael. Our executive producers are Karen Kinney, Marilyn Williams, and Yolanda Sanguini. Our senior VP of programming and audience development is Anya Grumman. Music by Ramteen Arab Louie. Special thanks to Christina Hardy, Rudy Correa, and Charlotte Riggi.
This message comes from NPR sponsor Viore, a new perspective on performance apparel. Clothing designed with premium fabrics, built to move in, styled for life. For 20% off your first purchase, go to viore.com slash NPR. Support for NPR and the following message come from IXL Learning. IXL Learning uses advanced algorithms to give the right help to each kid, no matter the age or personality. Get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when you sign up today at IXL.com NPR. What does it mean to be Black in America? In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, a collection of stories as varied, nuanced, and dynamic as Black experiences, you'll hear, it means everything. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get your podcasts.